Our text tonight is a fun one, as they have been the past few weeks. We're in Revelation 11, and we'll be reading the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 14. And as I read, I would encourage you to pay close attention. Uh, there's going to be a lot of numbers and symbolism, but, but I just encourage you to pay close attention to what is being communicated here. Revelation 11, 1 through 14. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on a holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from the mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tent of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. The third woe is coming soon. This is the word of God. There's a curious story of a man, perhaps you recognize his name. Uh, his name was Harold Camping. And Harold was a radio personality uh, who was very interested in the end times. Um, in fact, he was so interested and, and so convinced in, of his own biblical scholarship that he believed that the, the world would end in 1994. He wrote a book on this. He did, went on many um, radio shows and would, would tell people over the airwaves that the world was indeed ending in 1994. Well, sure enough, people um, who listened to this radio show would give money to it, and it grew. And um, when 1994 came and the world didn't end, many people were very disappointed. Instead of apologizing and, and moving on, Harold Camping decided, well, actually, I just got it wrong. The world's actually going to end in 2005. And then three more books were published, and sure enough, they were best-selling books. People bought these books. They ate it up. They thought, okay, 2005 is going to be when the world ends. 2005 came and went. Harold was wrong again. Finally, Harold said, I've been wrong, but I am 100% sure 2011 is when the world is going to end. In fact, I think it was like May 4th of 2000, 
11th is when the world will end. And he, this time, his, his uh, reach had grown. You'd think after getting it wrong twice, people would start to catch on. But he had a, this low, deep, baritone voice. He had this radio personality, and he wrote more books, and he had more decoding that he was doing with the scriptures, and he had a convincing way to tell people that the world was indeed going to end. People knew him as a prophet. Not a very good one, but he was a prophet, as he claimed. And so when 2011, and when May came and the world did not end, he pivoted quickly and said, oh, wait, no, it's October 12th, 2011. That is when the world's going to end. And I was reading about this today. Over $10 million were given to this campaign. Okay? So all this money was given. Things were getting intense. And one of the craziest things I read about is people, an interesting effect happened on a lot of people. You'd think if the world was ending, your, your sort of mindset would be, well, I need to get right with God. I need to make sure that, you know, I've got my things in order. But what many people did, who were convinced by his prophecies, is they actually ran up credit card debts. They actually had affairs in their marriage. They saw the end of the world as a way to sort of go out with a bang and live a hedonistic lifestyle. And sure enough, when October came, not only did the world not end, but Harold Camping had a stroke. When he had a stroke, they took him off the airwaves. And it wasn't until about, I think it was like three or four months before his death, he went on a radio program and he said, I need to repent because what I was doing was sinful and I was wrong. And it's true what is said in Matthew 24 and Jesus says, nobody knows the hour, the time of when he will return. Nobody knows exactly what that will be. Prophecy is a, a term that often gets abused. Um, Harold was a false teacher, a false prophet. In fact, you'll read about in the New Testament how oftentimes the Apostle Paul warns against false prophets, right? They're prophets who claim to know future knowledge, but oftentimes they are motivated by the wrong things. And what we learn about biblical prophecy, which I'm going to touch briefly in at the end of this, is that biblical prophecy is much less about looking in a crystal ball or being able to see the future and far more about holding a mirror up to what's actually going on in the world and revealing the things that are happening with God's people. And the reason I bring up prophecy is that I, my interpretation of this wild text, which is it's pretty crazy, there's a lot going on, lots of numbers and lots of interesting things with a beast, we'll get to that next week, but um, I, think I, I think I know what John is trying to communicate. And what he's trying to communicate to us is what we, who we are, what we are going to do in the world in the time between when Christ came and when he will return again. And he's sort of painting this picture for us and also preparing us for what to expect during that time. Now, I have an hour-long sermon that I could preach on this. I could take multiple weeks. I'm, there's an offer on the table. If you want those notes, I have them. I'll send them to you. Tonight, I'm going to try and pack this in, and we're going to try and do it in much less time but we're going to go quickly. So I'm going to encourage you for this, for tonight, just try to stick with me. Uh, I think it will all make sense once we get to landing the plane. As you see from the text, strange images of a temple. We've got to figure out, what is this temple? We have two unnamed witnesses who, are, who have sackcloths, which is just a, a, a type of clothing that, that sort of looks raggedy. It's got um, references to 42 months uh, 1260 days, there's the sadistic beast, there's the death, there's the resurrection, there's all these allusions and metaphors, and what does it all mean? 
I think there's two major ideas, as I already mentioned. One is that the church can expect severe opposition, right, in its time between when Christ has come and when Christ will come again. There will be difficulty, there will be persecution, and that may even face us at some point. But in the midst of its prophetic witness, what Christ is doing is saying is that those who are in Christ will be protected. That's not a physical protection, okay? That is a, a more uh, spiritual, our souls are protected in the midst of all of it because he's pretty honest that, look, you are going to face persecution. And so we're going to start in verses 1 through 3. I'm going to go verse by verse and just sort of unpack this a little bit. Um, in verses 1 to 2, it's referring to, uh, there's many who will read this, and those, interesting note, before I go there, let me just share a little of what happened in the last few weeks. So when I preached on Sunday a few weeks ago, I had an open offer for coffee for anybody who maybe disagreed with my interpretation or had a more futurist-leaning interpretation. Come to find out, there's a lot of people at Eastminster who have that view, um, which has been fun. I've been able to have a couple coffee dates with people. Um, I'm meeting with a women's Bible study next week, and we're having some great conversations, and I've got a stack of books on my table right now that people have given me, so uh, I'm learning a lot. Um, but I think it's important to show, because many people interpret this passage as differently than I'm going to interpret it tonight, and so I want to kind of give a little bit of a picture of what that might look like. So some people believe that the literal physical temple, so the temple that's being referred to is actually going to be a literal physical temple in the literal geographical Jerusalem that will be built just before the second coming of Christ, okay? So in the future, okay, and we talk about the, there's seven-year great tribulation period, there's our literal uh, time periods is how they would interpret this, and that there will be an actual temple built, and that, that, that there will be this group of Jews who are faithful worshipers um, that during the seven-year tribulation period will have reinstituted sacrifices and rituals. The Mosaic law will be back in effect for this group of Jewish people. But what will happen is their work will be destroyed by a physical beast, a literal beast, who will destroy the temple and essentially uh, subject the city of Jerusalem to severe affliction for a literal three and a half years or 42 months um, and during this literal seven-year period. So, if that's how we interpret it, you can imagine that there would be a, a, an absolute fascination and understanding of what's going on with Israel. If you'll notice, there were many people who claimed to be prophets in the last four years, especially during the last election cycle, who were very concerned about the re-election of our former president because of his direct ties to Israel. You might start seeing these connections. There is a concern with what is going to happen and how we play a role in Israel itself. And so when the outer court, outer court refers to Gentiles who will persecute the remnant, that's the group of uh, Jews who remain, this will happen during a 42-month period, and there are two literal witnesses. That would be Elijah and Moses. There's a few others that people speculate, but those were the two that I think most people who had that view would take. Their witness would span three and a half years, um, which they will be martyred by the beast, only to be resurrected three and a half days later. Now, this is a perspective in a way people have interpreted the book of Revelation. I disagree with it. Um, I could be wrong, but I want to sort of explain why I don't think that's what John was trying to communicate here. 
I believe that 11, 1 through 13 is describing symbolically the mission and fate of the church during the entire age between when Christ came and when Christ will come again. It's going to ultimately uh, accumulate in the persecution by the beast, which next week I encourage you to join us because our elder Ben Davis is going to come and share on this topic. I saw his notes. The dude's super smart. It's going to be awesome. So come next week. Um, But there is a the temple reference, I believe what's happening here is how the temple is referenced all throughout the New Testament. Okay, so when we talk about the temple, it's a reference made to the church and to God's people that the temple of God is first the person of Jesus Christ, whom God dwelt and manifested his presence, and secondly, his body, which is the church. And so the temple in the New Testament is no longer a physical building, but is instead the presence of God on earth. We see this in multiple places in the New Testament. I'll give you one verse um, to look at. That's Ephesians 2, 19-22. Apostle Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now you're going to see multiple references to this in the New Testament. And so this framing of how we think about uh, what the temple is in this context changes how the next verses read. So we have the measurements, okay? We have the measuring of the temple, um, which I don't think has anything to do with its literal height, size, and width. I think the measure speaks actually to the spiritual preservation from God's wrath. So the protection of God's people um, from the, the wrath, the, the wrath that is coming and is predicted in Revelation. Now, this is, again, important. Not protection from martyrdom, not protection from persecution or suffering or affliction, but rather protection from the, the spiritual wrath. Remember the locusts and the things that we talked about in previous weeks. I think this is John's way of describing the church's experience viewed from different perspectives. The church is spiritually protected from God's wrath. This is the inner sanctuary, okay? But it's physically oppressed by pagan forces. This is the outer courts. I believe this is what John is trying to communicate in this. And in verses 2 and 3, we have the numbers. We have 42 months, which if you do the math, I think 1,260 days is 42 months, three and a half years time. I believe it all adds up. Those are all the same, just told in different ways. The question we have to ask is whether or not these numbers are predicting a chronological and literal time period. Are they some sort of precise thing we make on our calendar, or is there something symbolically happening? Because many of those who have a dispensationalist view um, would take Revelation as simply a futuristic thing, Um, And the reference to the three and a half years would actually take place as half of the time during the seven-year tribulation. But what I think is happening is something a little different. I think the 42 months, which is the same as the 1260 days, which is the same for the three and a half years, equals time times half a time, is a reference to the whole um, time period in between the first and second coming of Christ. I have that chart that I had a few weeks ago. Isaac, if you pull that up for me. Um, this is the, the graph that sort of represents the amillennial view. 
that during this church age, okay, this is the age in which we are living in, this is sort of what is being communicated to and how, how we're describing, how we're thinking about the end times. We exist in them because they always have been. So instead of thinking chronologically about these numbers, I want us to think theologically. Instead of a quantity, think more about the quality, because I believe that this is what we're seeing. And I actually think they're making refer- he's making reference here to a passage in Daniel. It's Daniel 7, 25. We see the same phrase, time, times, and half a time, which if you do the math, it's like one plus two plus one half three and a half, right? So we have this number again, this exact phrase in the Old Testament. In Revelation, there are several um, texts which this similar thing can be found. So I'm going to go through four of them real quick. Revelation 11.2, which we read, that's the 42 months. It's the period which the nations will trample the holy city. Revelation 11.3, this is the 1260 days of the period which two witnesses will prophesy. We have Revelation 12, 6, again, repeating the 1260 days. Um, we have Revelation 12, 14, which we'll read in a few weeks. This is a time, times, and half a time. This is the period in which the woman is nourished in the wilderness. You'll find out about that in the following weeks. In Revelation 13, 5, 42 months, once again, the period at which the beast, the beast acts with authority and blasphemes. You're seeing a pattern. And when you see patterns, it's, it helps us sort of get a clue for how we think about apocalyptic literature. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense if it's going to be a literal 42-month period that it would be repeating for various different things that are going to happen rather than be trying to paint a symbolic picture for the age in which we are living. And I believe it's the period of persecution and tyranny in which God's people are oppressed and martyred, which I get it kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around because where we live, we don't really experience that. But throughout the world, even today, there are so many places. I've mentioned that website a few weeks ago, The Voice of the Martyrs, which tells stories about places where um, Christians are persecuted. And there are so many incredible stories on that website. I encourage you to take a look uh, of stories of courage, of faith in the midst of immense persecution and suffering. And so this book is written as an encouragement to those who are engaging with that. There's also evidence in the Old Testament and outside the Old Testament um, that three and a half, that number for the number of years, is a, is a uh, I'm going to quote a commentator, um, Beale. He said, it's a stereotypical or stock designation in apocalyptic literature for a, t- a period of persecution and distress, regardless of its chronological duration. And he gives a bunch of references where that time is used in the Old Testament. So what I think John is doing is I don't think he's trying to tell us an exact time period. I think instead he's trying to show us um, what kind of time he means by it. All right, still with me? Now we have the, the two witnesses. A lot of debate has gone to who are these two witnesses. And I think I, I had a chat with Pastor Stan this week, and him and I might have a little bit of disagreement here, so come Sunday if you want a different opinion, um, because it's not entirely clear who these two witnesses are. There are some um, who have theorized that it's Enoch and Elijah. Enoch and Elijah are two uh, characters in the Old Testament who did not experience a physical death. So it would make sense 
theologically speaking, that they would be candidates to return back to earth and to finish whatever task they were given. Another view is that they represent Joshua and Zerubbabel. Um, since Revelation 11.3 is patterned over Zechariah 4, we see a lot of the same language in Zechariah 4, 1 through 4. These two figures are mentioned in that passage, so they could also possibly be candidates for these two witnesses. The most popular take uh, for those who have this view is that they are patterned after Moses and Elijah. It was Elijah who was called, uh, called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel to consume his enemies. Okay, this language is similar to the language we'll see here as we continue to read in this passage. But what I think is most important about this passage are a couple of words. He says here, there are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. It's interesting that they're both in twos. The reference to the two olive trees, there, there's a few different interpretations. Some say it represents Israel. I think it actually uh, is sort of a reference to the Holy Spirit um, in Zechariah 4. Because again, this is, this is almost coming straight from Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. If you go back and read 4, 2 through 6, you'll see olive oil um, was often associated with anointing, and anointing is associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you see this reference to olives in Zechariah. Um, the lampstands all throughout Revelation represent the churches. If you remember the seven lampstands, we see that in Revelations 2 through 3. They represent the church exercising its role as the mouthpiece for Jesus Christ in the end of the age. And so you have these two witnesses. Why two then instead of seven? If it was seven lampstands, then why is there only two witnesses? I think the number two is important. I think it um, typically all throughout Old Testament, New Testament, you have Two witnesses are needed for a trial, and so um, evidence would only be accepted from testimony by having two witnesses. Jesus sent his followers into every town two by two. There's sort of this method of coming in twos. And so the two witnesses, to be an effective witness, there had to be two, and I believe that's what is happening. Here's what I think the two witnesses are. I think the two witnesses are the whole church as it fulfills its role as faithful prophetic witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. What I mean is the two witnesses are us, that we play the role here of what is going to happen during this time. And here's the kicker and why I think this is, this is the, how we should interpret it. In verses 9 through 13, it says, The entire world of unbelievers will see defeat and resurrection of the witnesses, this means that the witnesses are visible throughout the earth. Okay, this makes sense, only makes sense if they are symbolic of the entire global church. It doesn't make sense as if they're just two people playing these roles as witnesses, because that, that doesn't seem to line up. Now, um, Hal Lindsey, who is a, a televangelist who had a dispensationalist view, said uh, that the reason the whole world will be able to see these witnesses is because of the television, which maybe, maybe now he'd say the internet if he was still around, but... Um, I think actual closer reading suggests that we are, uh, the, the witnesses here are symbolic for the church. So what does, the, what do the witnesses do? What are they witnessing to? What is the role of us? Because if we are the witnesses, what are we then to do? In verse 5, it mentions harm. What is this harm? Christians will face hardship for their beliefs, but ultimately nothing 
can threaten their relationship with God. That's the protection. That's the seal on the forehead that, that God's people will be protected from God's wrath in that way. They may kill the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. And then you have the fire that proceeds out of their mouths, points again to the symbolic nature of both the witnesses and the ministry they are described to be fulfilling. The, the word in the Greek here is that they will prophesy, okay? We see this word for prophecy. I mentioned earlier the, the prophecies of Harold Camping. So what does it mean that we are going to prophesy? Have you ever given a prophecy? Has God ever given you a word of prophecy? Maybe you've experienced something among that nature. I'm going to share a story in a minute about something I experienced. Um, but in this case, we have this image, which I think is really profound, uh, this image of stopping the rain, turning water into blood, and smiting the earth with plagues. I think this power that is baked into this language to halt the rain is a reference to the impact of prayer of God, for God's people in this age. That prayer can cause amazing things to happen through God's power. We read about stories in, in the Old Testament of the, God making the sun stand still because of faithful prayer. I believe there is a call for us to pray. We are also called to prophesy, to be a prophetic witness of who Christ is to a dying world. And then in verses 7 through 10, we have what to expect. So what are we to do? We're to be a prophetic witness, to tell people about the good news of the gospel. We are called to pray, and then we are called uh, or we are going to be expected to experience persecution and oppression. This is what verses 7 through 10, I don't want to belabor this because we've talked about this week after week after week, um, but essentially that's what verses 7 through 10 are communicating. Um, that throughout church history, um, it appears that God's people will be destroyed, that evil has triumphed, but we find out in verses 11 through 12, appearances can be deceiving because it says some believe in the resurrection and uh, Revelation 11, 11. Um, there's this interesting thing that happens here where some people will interpret this to be the rapture, okay? How many of you are familiar with the term? Have you heard the term rapture? I know when I was in high school, I was taught um, by my youth pastor that one day God is going to bring his people to heaven and all that will be left is your clothes. And so we pulled a prank on him at summer camp where we all laid our clothes in our bed, and he was still sleeping, and we hid in the bathroom, trying to convince him that it was the rapture. Um, he got a chuckle out of it. Um, some people do believe that this is what this is trying to communicate, um, but I think it's an echo, actually, of Ezekiel 37, 5 and 10, where we read of God's restoration, uh, uh, restoring Israel out of Babylonian exile, and there's this line, it says, "'Thus says the Lord to, the, to these bones.'" Behold, I will cause breath to enter to you, and you shall live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and then breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, exceeding great army. I wonder, can you see the parallels here to what's happening in the book of Revelation? There's an echo to what God is doing in this moment which leads us to the last day, which is in verse 13. There are four things that are said in verse 14 and 13. I'm going to point them out real quick. Um, the hour, okay, this is Christ's return. First, there was a great earthquake. Um, is it a literal earthquake, symbolic? Not really sure. 
Second, the tenth of the city fell. Third, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Um, if the two witnesses are linked to Moses and Elijah, what's interesting is there were uh, 7,000 who did not bow to the feet of Baal in 1 Kings. Interesting connection. Um, not sure. These are odd numbers to just be randomly picked. And finally, it says, The rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. One of the interesting commentaries I read was by a guy named Richard Bauckham, and he said something really fascinating. He believes, and I think I agree with him, that the numbers one-tenth and 7,000 indicate that the conversion portrayed here is the vast majority of the lost, not the paltry few. He writes, that is to say, there is in the events of Revelation 11, 11 through 13, an indication of a great, vast, final global harvest or revival of souls. Essentially, what he's arguing is that 13 is the, the good news in the end, that God is going to have a global revival in the end of days. And so it's kind of a reversal, right? Because week after week, we hear of the judgment. We hear of God's wrath and judgment on those who will not repent. And then there's sort of a reversal in verse 13, um, where instead there's a large number that God saves as opposed to the one-tenth, which he does not. Okay, there's a lot here, and I know that, and if you're left confused, I'm a little confused myself, um, but we're working through it. I want to close by just having a, a few words about, about prophecy, because we are called in, in this, I think, for one, to know who we are, which is we are the church. We are living in the age where there will be persecution, there will be struggle. Um, we are called to be a prophetic witness. We are called to, to the word is prophesy. We are called to um, to endure during this time. And so what is prophecy? I want to just real briefly touch on this. In the Old Testament, um, prophets were served as God's representative to communicate God's word to his people. The Old Testament prophets were not concerned with giving their opinion. They weren't concerned with um, saying anything outside of what God was trying to communicate. Several texts in the Old Testament make this kind of explicit. We see this in Exodus God promised Moses, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And God assures Moses, he says, I will raise up for my people a prophet like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. That's in Deuteronomy 18. And then the Lord says to Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, I have put my words in your mouth. And he commissioned the prophet Ezekiel by saying, you must speak my words to them. The prophet Amos says, this is what the Lord says. You see these lines over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Prophets are speaking the words of God. Not, not in the sense that God himself is speaking, but he is using a vessel to communicate what he wants to communicate. In the New Testament, we have a couple examples of prophecy. We have John the Baptist who is prophesying. Um, we have uh, the Apostle Paul who on multiple occasions talks about the, the, the gift of prophecy. That prophecy, in, in a sense, the charismatic gift of prophecy is a gift for the church. He even says it's better than tongues. It's better than many of these other gifts because it, it encourages the church. It edifies the church. It encourages people. So prophecy is this, uh, it's a human report of divine revelation. I think there's a little difference and nuance in how the scriptures define prophecy versus teaching, although they're related. I think prophecy and in, in the examples we have in Acts and in different places are often spontaneous words from God. Um, 
in a biblical prophet, what we have to keep in mind is think of it less like a fortune teller and maybe more like someone who's holding a mirror and God is saying, look, I have a word for you and it's important. And perhaps it leads us to repentance. A great example of this is uh, with David. If you remember, David was um, doing some shady things. He was uh, taking Bathsheba, who was not his wife, and he, she attempts to he murder, he does murder uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Um, there's all this stuff going on in this story. And then the prophet Nathan okay, has a prophetic word for David, who's a friend of David. He said, David, you need to repent. And after that prophetic word, um, David recognized his sinfulness. The prophecy was a convicting thing. The Holy Spirit convicts David in this moment. And what does David do? He repents. I have two stories of my experience with prophecy, and I'll, I'll land the plane. I was at a conference. It was a fairly charismatic type conference. I was a little uncomfortable. Um, there were people speaking in tongues. There were things I was not comfortable with, but I was there, and I was experiencing it. And I had this lady come up to me, this nice lady, and she says, I have a word from God for you. And I was like, uh-oh, here we go. She put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, <laughs> the first words were, I see an elephant. <laughs> I'm like, all right, good start. Um, and she says, I see wildlife. I see sand. I see, I see a desert. I see, I see you in Africa. Okay, it's starting to come together a little bit. And she says, I see you in Africa. I see you ministering to thousands of people. I see you healing people in Jesus' name. And the whole time I'm thinking, okay, this is intense. Um, maybe I'm called to be a missionary or go to Africa. And, and she went on and on about what she saw for my future. And I remember afterwards being a little confused. I had been to Africa the year before on a mission trip. But I, I just sensed, I don't know if that was God. I don't know if it was a word from God. Maybe it was. And to this day, maybe it was a word from God. I don't know. But one of the things about the scriptures is that we are encouraged to test the spirits, meaning we are meant to be people who discern anytime somebody claims to have a word from God. And so it's important for us when, we, when somebody says, hey, I have a word of Lord or the God told me this, we should approach that with caution. Because oftentimes, um, people will use things like that or maybe think they hear from God when the reality is we need to be discerning to determine whether that's true or not. I don't in any way condemn this woman for, for saying these things, and she may be speaking from God. I don't know yet. We'll see. Um, but let me tell you one other story. I'm in this room. I have a Sunday school going on. We bring in these missionaries. These missionaries get on stage, and they begin to share about their mission organization. They tell these really powerful stories, and then they just sort of have this spontaneous time of prayer where they're praying for students, and it's really powerful. Spirit moves. It was awesome. And as we're leaving, uh, the, the, the wife of the, the missionary comes up to me, and he says, she says to me, she says, Matt, I'm sorry. I, I feel like the Lord has given me a word for you. And I'm like, oh, I've, been, I've been through this before. Here we go. And she said, I believe the Lord has told me that God sees that you're tired and weary. And he wants you to know that you can find your rest in him. And it was like words that pierced my soul in that moment. Like I sensed, I sensed God was speaking directly to where I was at in that moment as a 
young father who was drowning in a lot of ways, trying to get through life and seminary and all the things in my life. And I was like, oh, God spoke to me in that moment. And I believe that to this day, that that woman spoke a prophetic word to my soul. I believe in the gifts of prophecy. I believe that we're called to have a, have a prophetic um, witness to Christ in the world. I believe God has called us to be the church and to tell people who are desperate to hear from God about the good news of the gospel. And so this is ultimately, um, the book of Revelation is a prophetic book. It is, it is talking about uh, revealing things that, A, we've talked about are behind the curtain that are going on in the spiritual realm. And I believe that in the midst of it, in the coming weeks, that perhaps God has a specific prophetic word for you. And I would also say this in closing, if you sense that you have the gift of prophecy, um, that's something worth praying about, exploring. Um, I've experienced a lot of prophetries from people in my life, and sometimes I think we like to throw the baby out with the bathwater with these things, where we have a bad experience with a, uh, an expression of uh, the charismatic gifts that Paul talks about. Um, but I'm open cautiously uh, to seeing where God might still be moving in these ways. So I would encourage you to explore that. Um, this is a safe place to do that. If you sense a word of, from God, I would encourage you to share that. And uh, I'm excited to see where we continue to go on this journey through Revelation. Let's pray. Father, you have gifted uh, your church to endure difficult seasons, to endure hard times, to endure persecution. Right now, Lord, we lift up churches all throughout the world who are facing persecution. Many churches in African countries where there is civil war and unrest, and the Ukraine who's experiencing displacement and war, in Middle Eastern countries that are, where it's not safe to practice worshiping you, in, in, in Asian countries where churches are being burned. Lord, we, we pray right now for those who are experiencing that, that there would be a prophetic witness and a security they have in knowing, um, Lord, that you have protection for them that goes beyond the physical life and the physical world. Pray for us as we discern what um, this means for us, as it means for us in our day-to-day -day life, what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ, what it means to um, be the church. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us challenge us and push us in new ways and lead us closely to being walk in the step with you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.